Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Good morning, Grace. Open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. Let's pray as we begin. Father, in keeping with the theme that we've been hearing this morning, we declare that we believe the promise from Psalm 75, 1, which says, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. So, Father, we thank you this morning that the name that we have been lifting up, the name of Jesus, is near. That Jesus himself is here. And we look to you now, Father, to direct our hearts and our thoughts that we would be Christ-centered. And we ask you to empower us by your spirit to see wonderful things out of your word that we may be transformed for your glory. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The Fever is a classic episode of The Twilight Zone. In fact, I would argue that all episodes of The Twilight Zone are classics. The Fever is an episode of The Twilight Zone that underscores the power of desire and the human ability to be sucked in by destructive forces. The Fever is the story of Franklin and Flora Gibbs, Flora wins a slogan contest and is given three days and two nights free vacation in Las Vegas. She is excited about her trip, but her husband Franklin can't stand to be there. He can't stand to be there because he doesn't believe in what Las Vegas stands for. Everything about it is making him sick and he is miserable. As they arrive, a drunk man takes Franklin's hand and shoves a coin into it and forces him to play a slot machine. And when he pulls the lever, after much struggle, he wins quite a bit of money. As they depart, uh, Franklin says, we need to leave now. We're not going to put the money back into the machine. We're not going to give the money back to the machine. And as they depart, Franklin believes that he hears the slot machine calling out his name. Franklin. He continues to hear the voice through the evening, even as he's sleeping. He wakes and sees the money sitting on the nightstand there, and he begins to imagine his winnings piling up. So he decides to try his luck. He, he tells his wife that they cannot keep tainted money and that he's going to go put it back into the machine that gave it to him. Several hours later, his wife, Flora, goes to the casino floor and finds him playing that very machine obsessively. Addicted, Franklin has lost a great deal of their money. And when his wife tries to coax him to stop, he declares that he has lost so much of their money that he must stay and try to win at least some of it back. He becomes angry when she presses for him to leave. And he declares that the machine is inhuman and that it teases you and sucks you in. Eventually, the slot machine takes his last dollar and then it breaks down before he can pull the lever. Franklin begins yelling and attacking the machine to give him back his last dollar. He is taken out of the casino screaming. And then later in bed, Franklin tells Flora, 
that the machine was about to pay off, but that it deliberately broke down before it could pay him his winnings. And then Franklin hears the machine again calling his name. Franklin, Franklin. And the voice of the machine keeps calling out to him. Franklin, Franklin. And then Franklin sees it coming down the hallway toward their room, chasing him. Flora can't see the machine. She thinks her husband is going crazy. And the machine continues to follow him, calling out his name, Franklin, Franklin. And he backs up towards a window with his hands over his ears, finally crashing through the glass and falling to his death. Lest we think this is something that only takes place in that other dimension, the twilight zone, We have all been swayed by the voices in our heads, the voices that seek to capture our hearts. It may be the voices of others, but often it's the voices in our heads, the voices that we hear in our hearts that drive what we do. The voices that we entertain, the thoughts that we have will affect our life. That's what we'll see with Naomi in our text today. Our big idea is this. The most important thought that you will ever think is what you think when you think of God because it will determine every dimension of your life. The most important thought that ever comes into your brain is the thought that you think when you think of God because that thought will determine every dimension of your life. I learned this truth from Dr. Jeff Bingham at Dallas Seminary, and I'm indebted to him for the big idea. How we view God will determine everything in our life. A.W. Tozer said in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he deep in his heart conceives God to be like. Before the Christian church goes into eclipse anywhere, there must first be a corrupting of her simple, basic theology. She simply gets a wrong answer to the question, What is God like? And goes on from there. The most important thing about Naomi was what came into her mind when she thought of God. And it's the most important thing about us. Look at verse 15. And may the sovereign God begin changing our thoughts of him even as we read his word. Hear the words of the sovereign God. And Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law Orpah has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. If you'll remember from last week, we saw that Naomi's daughter-in-law Orpah had left her and returned to her uh, her home in Moab. And we saw that names are important in the book of Ruth, we saw that that Orpah's name actually means back of the neck. And the last thing that we saw of Orpah was in fact the back of her neck as she was marching on that dirt road back home to Moab. But here we see that Ruth, whose name means friendship or companion, Ruth, Naomi's other daughter-in-law, decides to cling to Naomi. But Naomi is not interested in Ruth's clinginess. 
this act of hesed that we saw, this loyal covenant love, this steadfast love that Ruth shows and demonstrates toward her mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi could give a rip about it. She wants Ruth to leave and go back home to Moab like her sister-in-law, Orpah. Naomi is trying to dissuade Ruth in verse 15 from returning with her to Bethlehem in Judah. Naomi wants Ruth to leave. So she says, look, see, it's the Hebrew word hene. And when an author or narrator uses this, he wants you to come into the picture and to see. He want, Naomi wants Ruth to see and the narrator wants us to see Orpah walking back to Moab. Naomi wants Ruth to see. Here's a better option. Better than saying with this bitter old lady, look and see your sister. She's leaving for Moab. It's not too late. You can catch up with her. Ironically, though, Naomi wants Ruth to see Orpah walking while the Lord wants Naomi to see that he is providing for her through the clinginess of Ruth. Naomi wants to be alone in her bitterness and misery. She points out Orpah returning to Moab where her family and her gods await her. The Moabites worshipped many gods, but their main god was Chemosh. Part of the way that the Moabites worshipped Chemosh was through human sacrifice. And Naomi sends Orpah away and now tries to get Ruth to go back to Chemosh. Naomi's faith is wavering here. Instead of inviting her daughters-in-law to come and worship Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, the God of the Israelites, Naomi wants to send them home to worship the pagan god, Chemosh. What is so striking about Naomi's situation is that what Naomi needs most desperately at this time in her life is community. The community of faith, the church, if you will. She needed to hear and to heed the voice of the community of God as it told her what God was like. And God had provided community to Naomi through Ruth and through the Israelites who await her in Bethlehem. And yet Naomi wants Ruth gone. She wants Ruth to see when she was the one that needed to open her eyes and to see that God, in fact, had provided for her after the death of her husband and two sons. Naomi didn't want to be around anyone. Understand this, Grace. This is the way humanity typically deals with tragedy and problems. We think we can handle it on our own. We push people away, we distance ourselves, we close, our, close ourselves off from other people. But what mean, we need most in times of trouble and hardship and tragedy is community. Someone to care, someone to listen, someone to put their arm around us, someone to just sit with us and be quiet, maybe someone to pray. We need community. But Naomi didn't want community. So she tells Ruth to return to Moab. This word dominates chapter 1. It's used over 12 times in chapter 1. And this is now the fourth time that Naomi is telling Ruth that she needs to return home. In verse 8, verse 11, verse 12, and verse 15. It's like, get the point here, Ruth. I don't want you to be around me. I want you to leave So the question is, will Ruth return home after being pressed by her mother-in-law so much to go home? We expect her to because Naomi is pushing Ruth away. 
Ruth is making a decision. Making a choice between her people, the Moabites, and their God, Chemosh, and the Israelites, and their God, Yahweh. She knew her people. She knew her gods. She knew her customs. She knew what her worship style preference was down in Moab. She had family and friends. Familiar things in a familiar life awaited Ruth in Moab. Or she could cast her lot with an old woman, her mother-in-law, Naomi, and her people, the Israelites, and their God, Yahweh, whom she had heard of all these years. Right now, you have to think that Ruth is going to return home. It's like home, family, chemosh, everything that I've been about my whole life, or stay with this bitter old woman who happens to be my mother-in-law and go to a strange foreign land. Right now, you have to think that Ruth is going to choose to return home. After all, Naomi is not exactly the poster child for robust Israelite faith in Yahweh. Naomi is not exactly the ideal Israelite here. But Ruth is a fighter. She does not listen to Naomi's voice. Look at verse 16 and 17. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. And where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord Yahweh do so to me. And more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. The first words that we get from Ruth are magnificent. Her, her voice comes out of nowhere. This is the first time we're hearing her speak and her voice stands in stark contrast to the voice of Naomi. Her words are full of poetic beauty, full of courage, full of a depth of spirituality that we do not see in Naomi, the Israelite. And what is so interesting about this is that Naomi is not the model Israelite believer, and yet Ruth insists on going with her. This gives hope that even when we blow our testimony and witness for the Lord, he can still draw people to himself. Can I get an amen for that? How many times have I blown it? And yet God can still draw people to himself, and it's not based on me and the way that I live and react Ruth is so committed to Naomi that she even takes an oath here. She says, may the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. When Ruth says this, she is basically saying, may Yahweh slit my throat if I don't stick with you. That's the idea here. You have to kind of picture her doing the little thumb throat slit thing. as She says, may Yahweh slit my throat if anything but death separates me from you. This is true hesed. This is true steadfast love. This is true loyal covenant love. This is true community. Naomi wanted to push Ruth away in the midst of her tragedy, but Ruth clung to her, which is just what Naomi needed. She needed community. The saying is that misery loves company, but not so with Naomi. She didn't want any company. For Naomi, it was actually a case of misery needs company. Naomi needed people around her. Why? 
because she had a skewed understanding of God and that was affecting every area of her life. Remember, the most important thought that you will ever think is what you think when you think of God because it will determine every dimension of your life. Naomi's view of God was affecting every area of her life. She thought the Lord was after her. She thought that he was malicious and bringing calamity upon her. She did not see God as a good, gracious, covenant-keeping God. And because that's how she saw God, it totally changed how she saw her life. Naomi's view of God even changed how she saw her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Here we have this beautiful, poetic declaration of hesed, loyal covenant love, coming from the lips of her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and yet Naomi's bitterness drowns out the voice of Ruth. Ruth says, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people, and your God my God. And where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. And Naomi says, la, 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 God is mean. La, 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 he is to blame for all my troubles. La, 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 God is against me. The most important thought that you will ever think is what you think when you think of God because it will determine every single area and dimension of your life. And it didn't just happen on the dirt road for Naomi as she was heading back to Bethlehem. It continued when she arrived in Bethlehem. Look at verse 18 with me. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, She said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi realizes that Ruth is sticking to her guns, so she stops trying to persuade her to return to Moab. And then the story speeds up, and we see the two widows entering Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, and the town goes nuts. The word for stirred here is used to to describe the excited noise that the people of God experienced in 1 Samuel 4 when the Ark of the Covenant appeared. It's the excited noise that the Israelites uh, made when when Solomon was crowned king in 1 Kings chapter 1. The whole town buzzed at Naomi's return. They remember Naomi. They can't believe it's her. And the women are surprised because, one, it's been years. They assume that Naomi was dead. We haven't seen hide nor hair of her for all these years. Secondly, her appearance shows the depth of her soul. She's haggard. She looks like she has been paying the high cost of low spiritual living. You can picture the ladies in Bethlehem saying, Girl, you need some spa time. You need a little Mary Kay in your life. You looking rough, girl. And how does Naomi reply? She says, Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant or lovely. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. 
lest we throw Naomi under the bus at this point, let me point out one positive aspect of Naomi here. She's a straight shooter. She doesn't hide behind Romans 8.28 with a fake exterior. She's real. She's hurting. What she's going through is very raw. And she lets these people know it. Naomi could not have picked a better place to let it all out in the community of faith. This is where she needs to come clean. It's the same for us as well. The church should be a place where you can express your thoughts and your feelings knowing that it is a safe place. This is where you can cry and share your struggles. The community of faith, the church, is to be a sounding board for you. When tragedy strikes, when life is bitter, you need community. Misery needs company. Misery needs community. Look at verse 20 again. Naomi said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means Bitter, And then she gives her reasons why. And she levels four accusations against God. Accusation number one, she says, For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Notice the word play here with Mara, the word bitter. She says, call me bitter because God has dealt bitterly with me. Call me Mara because God has marred me, if you will. In a sense, she is saying, don't call me pleasant or lovely. Call me bitter old hag because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Naomi is blaming the Lord. She is accusing him of injustice. The Hebrew verb here for bitter is in the causative stem. Naomi is saying that God has caused her bitterness. He has made life extremely bitter for her. He has caused her to be bitter. It's not her fault. It's all his fault because he has caused this. And she says it's the Almighty who has done it. The Almighty is the term in Hebrew, Shaddai. Think Amy Grant, El Shaddai, El Shaddai, whatever she says after that. I don't know. It's not a name here for the Lord. It's a title for God that most likely means sovereign one. Two interesting points here. When Naomi says that Shaddai, the almighty, the sovereign one. One, the title Shaddai or the almighty is used in the book of Genesis in the context of the promise of numerous offspring. The promise of more and more children. By contrast, Naomi has suffered the loss of her children and the loss of her husband and the possibility to even get pregnant again because she's so old. And so she says Shaddai, the one that gives numerous offspring has taken all mine away. Secondly, in Genesis, both Abram and Israel received their new names in the context of a promise from El Shaddai. But Naomi, in her pain, asks that her name be changed because of what Shaddai has done. Abram and Israel get new names because Shaddai, 
the Almighty appears. Here, Naomi says, change my name because of what Shaddai has done to me. Naomi is clear about all of this. The Lord has caused her life to be very bitter. It is all his fault. Accusation number two, she says, I went away full and Yahweh has brought me back empty. When she says she went away full, she's talking about her having her husband, Elimelech, and her two boys with her, Machlon and Kilion. She says, I went away full. I had a husband. I had two sons. And now Yahweh has brought me back empty empty. The truth of the matter is that Naomi did not return empty though because Ruth was standing right by her side committed to her for the rest of her life. Naomi is blinded by her pain and she can't see the goodness of God. Naomi's distorted view of God has distorted her view of life. In fact, even in the Hebrew, the way Naomi expresses herself exposes her belief that she and Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, are diametrically opposed to one another. Here's how the Hebrew reads literally. I, full, went away But empty brought me back Yahweh. I, full, went away. But empty brought me back Yahweh. Even the subjects in her sentence are set apart in an extreme manner. She won't even put their names together in this sentence. She separates them as far as she can get them. For Naomi, it's Yahweh versus Naomi. Accusation number three. She says, why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? Naomi says, don't you dare call me pleasant. Don't you dare call me lovely. Don't you dare call me Naomi because Yahweh has testified against me. She uses courtroom language, which occurs in the Old Testament. She's saying that I've been brought to court and Yahweh is testifying against me. Again. Her picture was Yahweh versus Naomi. Accusation number four, she says, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Again, Naomi accuses God of bringing all this disaster in her life. She never once considers her role in it. The verb to inflict calamity derives from the Hebrew root for evil or bad. Naomi is not saying that God is morally corrupt, that he is evil in his character or nature. But she is saying that the evil, the disastrous misfortune, the bad things that have happened to her, the bad that she has experienced is all his fault. Instead of seeing God as a good and gracious covenant-keeping God, Naomi is bitter and hurls accusations at God. As one commentator says, Naomi may have come back home in faith, but hers is a flawed faith. Unable to see human causation in Israel's famine and in her own trials, the woman the neighbors greet is a bitter old woman. She does indeed ascribe sovereignty to God, but this is a sovereignty without grace, an omnipotent power without compassion, a judicial will without mercy. The most important thought that you will ever think is what you think when you think of God because it will determine every dimension of your life. Naomi could not see the gracious provision of the Lord 
Ruth, the community of faith in Bethlehem, and the season of the year when they returned, which was the barley harvest. Look at verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Things are looking up for Naomi, but she can't see it. Notice the two bookends of chapter 1. It starts with this famine and it ends with a barley harvest. The barley harvest brings closure to the beginning of the story where the famine was so prominent. In addition, the barley harvest will actually become the very stage for the Lord's provision for Naomi. Because it's in the barley harvest that Ruth, her daughter-in-law, will meet her future husband, Boaz. And they will get married And they will have a kid. And that kid will help provide for Naomi and her future. Naomi cannot see the possibilities right now. She does not see Yahweh as her ally. She sees the Lord as her judge. And her words, her voice affirms this. But the narrator never says this. The narrator never says that the Lord is her enemy. The author of the book of Ruth never says with his voice that what Naomi is saying is true. And we must hear uh, Naomi's words, but we must also listen to the author or to the narrator. The narrator never says that Yahweh is Naomi's enemy. There are 21 direct references to God in the book of Ruth, and only five of them are negative. 21 direct references to the Lord, and only five of them are negative. All five negative comments about God come from the lips of Naomi. Naomi's voice is the lone voice accusing God of injustice. As we will soon see, her voice gets drowned out by all of the other voices in the book that will speak positively of and even praise Yahweh. In fact, the book of Ruth itself drowns out Naomi's voice. Here in verse 20, Naomi calls on others to call her bitter, but no one ever does. No one ever calls her bitter. 13 times other characters, the narrator, Boaz, the foreman, 13 times other people in the story call her Naomi. No one ever calls her by her new nickname. Someone needed to tell Naomi that in the ancient Near East as it is today, you don't get to pick your nickname. It has to be given to you. The most important thought that you will ever think is what you think when you think of God because it will determine every dimension of your life. Let me ask you today, Grace, what do you think of when you think of God? Is he an angry father? Is he detached? How do you view God? For Naomi, the voice in her head was saying that God was a vindictive, angry God and that he was at war with her. This was far from the truth. But Naomi's voice, the voice in her head, her thoughts were telling this, telling her that this was true. God is angry at some people. God is angry at every single human being born into this world because we're all born sinners, and we deserve death 
immediately at conception because we're sinners. We deserve to die immediately because we've inherited the DNA of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And then we're born into this world and we prove our sinfulness by the things that we say, do, think, and the motives that drive us. And we prove that we're sinners and deserve God to be angry at us and to be punished in hell forever because of the life that we live, breaking his commandments, living in defiance against him, and finding delight and joy in things other than our own creator. So is God angry at some people? Absolutely. That's what the Bible teaches. And that's why he sent his son Jesus. So that he could pour out his just anger and wrath upon his son so that we wouldn't have to be on the receiving end of that. And those that trust in Jesus Christ, they repent of their sins and they trust in Jesus and say, you are my all in all. You are my everything. You are my treasure. Those people get transferred out of that arena of God being angry at them, transferred into his family, adopted as one of his children where God showers them with love and devotion and blessing. So is God angry at humans? Yes, because we've messed up his world. But he loved us so much that he sent Jesus to take the penalty for our sin to bring us to him. So if you've never repented of your sins and trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, I implore you now to do it today. Because if you never do, the only thing that you have to look forward to is an eternity in hell being on the receiving end of God's holy and just wrath and anger forever. But let me talk to those of you now who have repented, who have trusted in Jesus. And you would say, I'm a disciple of him. I am a Christian. Let me ask you, Christians, how do you view God? John Owen said, that some believers are afraid to have good thoughts of God. They think it a boldness to eye God as good, gracious, tender, kind, and loving. And they think herein they do well. Are you afraid to have good thoughts of God? Are you afraid to think that God is rejoicing over you because of his son? Are you afraid to think that God delights in you because of his son? Do you think it a boldness? Do you think, how dare me ever think that God is gracious, tender, kind, and loving, and you think you do well to think that God is angry at you all the time? Do you think it pleases God for you to walk around cowering in fear, thinking that he is angry at you? Do you think herein you do well? You don't, Christian. Because of Jesus' life, his righteousness that he gives to you, when God sees you, he sees the perfect life of his son. Yes, he grieves when you turn away from him. Yes, he grieves when you delight in a million other things and you sin and do what you do, but he delights in you. He rejoices over you, as Zephaniah says, with singing. Another Puritan Walter Marshall said, when you consider what real love for God is, you can easily see that you cannot love God in this way if you think you are under the curse and wrath of God. You cannot love God if you are under the continual secret suspicion that he is really your enemy. You cannot love God if you secretly think he condemns and hates you. Your love for God must be won and drawn out by your understanding of God's love and goodness towards you. You simply cannot love God unless you know and understand how much 
He loves you. Let me ask you today, Christian, are you like Naomi? Do you live with the secret suspicion that God is your enemy? That God is upset with you and angry at you? Listen, he poured out all of his wrath at your sin on his son. And like a sponge, Jesus absorbed every last drop of God's hatred for your sin. Do you live with the secret suspicion that he is really your enemy? You'll never love God. You'll never love God until you realize all that Jesus has done for you to bring you into the family of God. And once you understand that, you'll want to live for him. And you'll want to declare that you are my all in all. You are my treasure. That's where Naomi was. Living with the secret suspicion that God was her enemy. Naomi was trying to understand God according to her own thoughts and it was affecting every area of her life. Naomi couldn't see it, but God's provision was there. Ruth, the people in Bethlehem, the community of faith, and the barley harvest. Naomi could not see it because the voice in her head was calling out to her. Let me ask you today, is the voice in your head calling out to you and saying that God doesn't love you and that God is your enemy? The most important thought that you will ever think is what you think when you think of God because it will determine every dimension of your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your word, which has exposed all of our hearts. I hope at least those who are here today that don't know you would understand your anger at them because of their sin, but they would repent and trust in Jesus and become a Christian today. But for those of us who are your children, Father, so many times we doubt your love for us. We doubt your goodness. We, so many times as I even did this morning, woke up with that secret suspicion that you were my enemy because of the way that I have lived. Would you forgive us of that? Would you remind us how much it grieves your spirit when we think these hard thoughts of you? Direct our hearts now to your son, to his life, death, and resurrection. And may we leave here having our thoughts corrected by your word to see you as good, gracious, and covenant-keeping. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.